Well, we're going to uh, uh, preach what will be my last sermon in 2 Timothy as we finish up the book today. So if you would turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 19 through 22. And remember as we read, this is God's inspired and inerrant word. Let's read together. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 19. Greet Prisca and Achilla and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Let me pray and ask God's blessing upon this text. Father, we know that you have said all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God might be fully equipped for every good work. And we pray that you then would take this ending to uh, this second letter of Paul to Timothy, that you would open up its truths to our soul, open our souls up to receive the truths and that we would really be filled with um, the truth of your word such that it would dwell within us richly as Paul said in Colossians and that our minds would be renewed and our hearts encouraged and strengthened by it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, as I said, we've come to the end of 2 Timothy Uh, This is the last sermon that I'm going to preach on this New Testament letter, and it's going to cover the very last recorded words of the Apostle Paul. And once again, we see that this portion of the letter contains very personal details, um, details that pertain to the historical circumstances of just two people. The Apostle Paul and his son in the faith, Timothy. And this is a personal letter, right? From one man to another. That's come down to us through history. And so it reflects events that happened a long time ago. Things that pertain to their relationship as friends, brothers, co-laborers in the faith. But that doesn't mean even as we read it. And you may have been tempted to think, what does this have to do with us? Just because this is a letter written between from one man to another thousands of years ago doesn't mean it's irrelevant to us. Rather, as I said, God has said in his, in his word that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us. And there are certain things that these details have to teach us today or remind us of today as we look to them. And so let's walk through these closing verses to 2 Timothy and see what the Lord has for us in them. So first, what we see is that Paul sends greetings to certain members of the Ephesian church. Remember, Timothy had stayed in Ephesus. Paul had really sent him there. And he was there laboring as a sort of church leader um, in 
this church of Ephesus. And so Paul is sending greetings to certain members of the Ephesian church where Timothy was laboring. This is verse 19. Look there, he says, Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Now that word greet, um, in the Greek, that was a word that would have been used very commonly in letters in the ancient world. Um, The letters that Paul wrote were not somehow mysteriously atypical. They were like letters that people would write in the ancient world, and people would often give greetings to one another. So the same way that I might say, hey, say hello to David Baker for me, right? Uh, Or um, someone would say back to me, oh yeah, so-and-so says hi. Well, that's kind of what uh, this word conveyed. It was an expression of warm friendship. It, It was a way of letting people know that you cared about them, that you were sending special greetings to them. It's as simple as that. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. These were people that were there in the church at Ephesus where where Timothy was pastoring. And you can see that he's singling out. No doubt there was a, a lot of people in the church of Ephesus, but he singles out three people in particular. And two of them were a married couple, Prisca and Aquila. Uh, By the way, the names Prisca or Priscilla would be the longer form of it, Priscilla and Aquila. These are names that as a couple, as a pair, were mentioned six times in the New Testament. So they're a fairly prominent uh, pair of people in the early church. They're always mentioned together. In fact, Acts chapter 18 verse 2 tells us explicitly that they were husband and wife. It is very interesting, and scholars have noted this and sometimes made far too much of it, but every time, uh, well, four out of the six times that that this pair appears in the scripture, her name, Priscilla, is mentioned first. And what's striking about that is in the ancient Greco-Roman culture, you typically would have put the husband's name first. And so the fact that her name appears first seems to indicate that there was some kind of prominence there to her. Um, It could have been a spiritual prominence. Perhaps she was a very uh, uh, effective and knowledgeable and spiritual woman and that perhaps she even exceeded her husband in that regard um, such that she became even more noteworthy than he did in the early church. That's a possibility. Or it could be that she was simply from a more uh, like a very notable family in Rome where she was from. Um, But whatever the case, uh, these were two Jewish believers, a husband and wife pair, and they were originally from Rome. In fact, Acts chapter 18 verses 1 through 3 tells us that they had been expelled from Rome uh, when the infamous edict of Claudius, the emperor, Uh, was handed down, where he basically expelled all Jews from the city of Rome. And Prisca and Aquila, or Priscilla and Aquila, were some of these Jews who were also Christians, who had been expelled from Rome during the Edict of Claudius, and they had gone to Corinth. And this is where the Apostle Paul had met this couple. 
was in the city of Corinth as he was coming through and that time when he first planted a church there. And of course, this is all recorded in Acts chapter 18 where we see Paul first go to Corinth and plant the church in Corinth. Interestingly, this couple did seem to be wealthy of some degree of wealth because they're often said to have hosted a church in their house. But by trade, Acts chapter 18 told us that they were, you know it, tent makers. And that Paul somehow had learned that trade so that when he came to Ephesus, to uh, Corinth, he found this Jewish Christian couple there who had been expelled from Rome by the, at the Edicts of, Edict of Claudia, Claudius, and they were tent makers. And so he actually worked for them because remember, the Apostle Paul had wanted to um, not take any money from the people that he was sharing the gospel to, lest that, that become a stumbling block to them. So he actually worked with his hands as a tent maker uh, for Priscilla and Aquila until he was able finally to be freed up to minister full-time there uh, as some of his missionary team came and were able to uh, work, uh, provide the money for him. What we see, though, is that he became so attached to this couple that he ended up taking them with him when he left Corinth and went to Ephesus. The first time that he stopped in Ephesus after leaving Corinth, he didn't stay very long, but he left Priscilla and Aquila there. It appears that he intended to come back, which, of course, in Acts chapter 19, we see that he did and planted a church there in Ephesus, but he left them there. And that was when you had this great preacher, Apollos, come through town, and uh, he was somewhat misguided in his theology, being only familiar with the baptism of John. And so Priscilla and Aquila actually took Apollos aside and instructed him more accurately in the gospel until Paul later came through and planted the church there. Eventually, Paul did come back and planted this church in Ephesus. And in fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 19, which is a letter that Paul uh, wrote to Corinth, we see in the end of that letter that the church in Corinth ended up meeting in the house of Priscilla and Aquila. So they became uh, key figures there in the church in, in uh, Corinth. But it's interesting that when Paul then later on writes the letter to the Romans, what you see is that when he writes this letter to the Romans, he mentions, hey, send greetings to Priscilla and Aquila. Which means that at some point after the Edict of Claudia had been dropped and Jews were allowed to return to Rome, that Priscilla and Aquila actually did end up going back to Rome, such that they're mentioned as being there at the end of Paul's letter to Rome. And that's actually what makes this verse somewhat striking. Because here at the end of Paul's final letter that he ever wrote, guess where Aquila and Priscilla and Aquila are? They're back in Ephesus back at that church that, uh, that had been so near and dear to their hearts, where they had actually been there before Paul had planted the church there, where they had uh, served uh, for so long with him and helped plant this church. And so they're there with Paul and Timothy. In fact, it makes me wonder if maybe Paul had appealed to them, hearing of Timothy's difficulties there, to return to Ephesus and to strengthen him by laboring alongside him there in the church. 
So that's the first couple that he sends greetings to, and you can understand why. The next is he sends greeting to, it says, the household of Onesiphorus. Now, there's only one other place in the scripture that Onesiphorus' name pops up, and it's actually in the first chapter of this letter, 2 Timothy. He mentions um, Onesiphorus in the beginning of this letter. In fact, if you turn back to chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, you can see why Onesiphorus came to have a very special place in the heart of the Apostle Paul. There it says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. There's so much there, but... We talked about this before, actually, in the beginning of of this sermon series, but when he says, you, Timothy, you know how well, or all the service he rendered at Ephesus, that means that uh, the reason why he's mentioning Onesiphorus is because Onesiphorus was probably from Ephesus. He was a member of the church there, and he had been a very faithful and useful service. You know all the service he rendered, Timothy, in Ephesus. So he was probably from Ephesus, he was an Ephesian, he had become a Christian, he had served the church well. But when Paul was in prison the second time, now think of it, Paul said, everyone else deserted me, all who were in Asia deserted, deserted me, Timothy. He talks about how uh, everyone on his missions, missionary team was gone, Luke alone is with me, he says. And there's a sense in which this time around, as Paul was definitely condemned by the Romans as a criminal, and he was about to be put to death. It was like everyone was hands-off with the Apostle Paul. There was People were ashamed of him now. People often turned away from him and were no longer loyal to him. And people did not were out of fear that lest they come to share in his fate. We're not visiting him, apparently. But this man, Onesiphorus, makes the trek all the way from Ephesus, Remember I said last week, something like a 1,300-mile journey by by way of travel miles from the city of Ephesus in Turkey to the city of Rome. It it involved two sea voyages, mountainous terrains. He comes all the way when he hears Paul's imprisonment. And he hears of his plight. And it says he searched for him. Paul's in some dungeon somewhere, right? This isn't like his first imprisonment where he you know, had a nice rented quarters and people could come visit him. He's in some dungeon somewhere. Onesiphorus searches him out and it says, he refreshed me. He was not ashamed of my chains. That probably means that he brought food, he brought clothing. He, would, he ministered to Paul, encouraged him. Maybe they sang together. Maybe they prayed together. Maybe they remembered and quoted passages of Scripture together. Oh, you can see why he would send greetings, especially to the household of Onesiphorus. Now, out of all the members in the church in Ephesus, Paul singles these three people out. He says, please, send greetings, Timothy. Say hi to Priscilla, Aquila, in the household of Onesiphorus. Why? Because of these special bonds that they had developed over the years by serving alongside one another in gospel ministry. And brothers and sisters, this reflects a truth, doesn't it? That serving together in gospel ministry builds special relational bonds. Sometimes people, you know, when they come to a church, 
right? They're new to a church. They show up. And you can watch them at times get offended that people in that church already have established friendships. And they say, man, people in this church are so clicky. It's hard. You know, I feel kind of on the outside. As if when they come into the church, they should immediately become just a part of all the friendships. But, you know, I think that we need to check ourselves when we have that kind of attitude. Because oftentimes, the reason why you come into a church and people have these friendships that are deep and and you realize, well, I'm not part of that friend, those friendships is because these people have been laboring in this local church alongside one another for many years in ministry. And like Paul with Onesiphorus and with Priscilla and Aquila, um, sometimes there's been decades in which they've labored alongside one another and built close bonds of friendship as a result, right? And that's not a bad thing, is it? That's not just being clicky. That's They've built these friendships. And you can't expect to have that immediately when you come into a church, can you? Now, we all should expect that Christians should be friendly. They should be loving. And when people come into the church, they should reach out to them and seek to draw them into friendships and, and seek to have them come alongside and serve in ministry. But you can't have that right away. It takes time of fellowshipping and serving alongside one another in ministry to build those bonds. But I know many of you in here can testify to how sweet that is when you have those have forged those bonds of loving Christian fellowship over many years of serving together in gospel ministry. That is a good thing. And you know, if you are from the outside of a local church and you do come in, you see that, uh, and perhaps it offends you at first, I would just say gently, Don't let it offend you. Here's what you do. You join a local church. You begin trying to get to know people. You worship with them every Sunday. You start serving in that local church as faithfully as you can. You don't focus on yourself and your needs. You try to get to know other people, pray for them. And guess what? You'll start building those bonds of fellowship as well. And they are sweet. And I would encourage everyone to recognize the value of this. So first, Paul sent greetings to certain members of the Ephesian church. And now second, Paul passed news about certain mutual friends. And we see it there in verse 20. Paul passed news about certain mutual friends. So look what he says. He says, almost as if this came to his mind, right? Send greetings. Oh, and by the way, Erastus remained at Corinth. And I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. You know, so many people had deserted. That word is used in in this letter several times. So many had deserted the Apostle Paul. Remember in chapter 1, verse 15, he told Timothy, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, deserted, abandoned me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. He had called to mind particular figures who who had really rejected Paul and perhaps his gospel too. And now we know that no one from his missionary team was really left with him except for one. He says, Luke alone is with me. And he was talking about his missionary team that he had spent so many years traveling around and planting churches with. And some of these people that were now gone were gone for good reasons. Titus had gone to Dalmatia and Crescens was gone. And Tychicus he had sent with this letter in hand to Ephesus to bring it to Timothy. 
But others were gone for bad reasons. You remember he said, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica, chapter 4, verse 10. And you could almost sense that Timothy, knowing that so many of their former companions were no longer with him, and some had even deserted Paul, you could perhaps think that maybe Timothy had in his mind certain workers, fellow workers in ministry from Paul's old missionary team that he was wondering about. I wonder what happened to them. What about them? Where are they? And Paul seems to think of two men in particular that Timothy might have wondered about. Saying, Paul, why, why aren't they with you? What happened to Erastus? What happened to Trophimus? Where are they? I hope they haven't been like Demas. And here we see that one of these was Erastus. He was a man whose name, the name Erastus, appears two other times in Scripture. One of them in particular seems to definitely refer to this Erastus, and that is in Acts chapter 19, verse 22. And there it says that after that great riot in the stadium in Ephesus, you remember that? Over three hours they chanted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the Christian brothers there restrained Paul from entering the theater. And that seems to have been the death knell of Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. It was time for him to go. And so he left and he was going to go back to Jerusalem where he would be arrested. But before he did, he was going to go up through Macedonia and visit the churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And so he actually uh, sent a team up into there ahead of him. And it says, And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus. Timothy and Erastus. He himself stayed in Asia for a while. So at least we know that Timothy knew this Erastus, that this was a a laborer that he had spent some time with. He'd gone, taken a difficult and dangerous journey with, that he had labored alongside, at least on this missionary journey, and, and perhaps others as well. And you can imagine Timothy saying, where's Erastus now, Paul? Paul said that Erastus remained at Corinth. And we wonder, why? Was it good? Was he there because Paul sent him? Or or was it for bad reasons? Had had he done what Demas had done? And the fact is, is we just don't know. But we have hope that perhaps Paul had sent him home. Because it's possible, seems likely indeed, that this Erastus was actually also the Erastus that Paul mentions at the end of his letter to Romans. Romans 16, 23, he says, Gaius, who is host to me, by the way, Paul probably wrote this letter to Romans uh, from the city of Corinth. So he's in Corinth and he says, Gaius, who is host to me, and the whole church greets you, Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. So it seems that likely, although we can't be sure, this is the same Erastus, that he was a Corinthian. That was his hometown. In fact, he was a man of some importance. He was a city treasurer, which is, which is also, it could mean treasure. It could also mean sort of a, 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 a public administrator. Uh, he's part of the bureaucracy there. And he'd become a Christian. And perhaps it seems that Paul had taken him with him on his missionary journeys. But at some point, And we can hope that maybe it was because Paul sent him home. Erastus, there's no point you coming with me at this point. I'm just going to be in the dungeon in Rome. Luke will be with me. But he sent him back to the church at Corinth, hopefully to just minister and strengthen the church there. And the other man Paul mentions is Trophimus. Now this man, he's also mentioned two other times in the New Testament. 
Um, after that riot in Ephesus, Paul left, and we already read in Acts chapter 19.22 that Timothy was with Erastus. Well, it's interesting that it also says, talks about other members of his team that were with him at that time. It says, Sopater the Berean, the son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and out of the Thessalonians there were Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians. Now, when he says Asian there, he's not talking about China or Indonesia. He's talking about Asia Minor, which was the region of Turkey, where you had uh, churches like Colossae and Ephesus and others, Laodicea. That's Asia. And he says, the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. Later on, we're told that Trophimus was an Ephesian. Acts 21, 29 says, Uh, that he was an Ephesian. So he's a member of the, he was from Ephesus, he was a member of the Ephesian church, and he joined Paul's missionary team. And it's interesting that in Acts 21, 29, you remember that that famous event where Paul was arrested. And if you think back in your mind why he was arrested, it was because he had gone into the temple to um, offer the sacrifices needed to fulfill a vow. But The Jews thought that he had taken a Gentile into him, into the temple with him. And that's what led to his arrest and subsequent imprisonment for many years. And you can imagine whoever that Gentile was must have felt bad that he was sort of the cause, uh, at least even though Paul hadn't taken him into the temple, it was him that had sort of led to the arrest. Well, guess who it was? Trophimus. Says Acts twenty one twenty nine. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Very interesting. This is Trophimus, and he's mentioned alongside Timothy as part of the missionary team that Paul had with him when he made that journey uh, all the way back to Jerusalem, leading to his arrest. So they knew each other. They'd been with Paul through many of these events that he had gone that he had that had happened to him. Timothy had served alongside Trophimus. In fact, Timothy was pastoring Trophimus' home church, right? He's Trophimus the Ephesian, and now Timothy is pastoring the Ephesian church. You can imagine then, again, like Erastus, perhaps Timothy's thinking, I wonder what happened to Trophimus. If Paul's in prison, last time I saw Trophimus, he was with Paul. Where's Trophimus now? What happened to him? He deserted Paul like Demas. And Paul says, no, Timothy, I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Which, by the way, Miletus was that little, it was a a city on that little peninsula that stuck out very near to the city of Ephesus. It was where Paul, wanting to avoid visiting Ephesus, had asked the Ephesian elders to come over to Miletus so that he could meet with them there. And he has that famous interchange with them there in Acts chapter 20. Well, Paul now tells Timothy, actually, Trophimus is not far from you. I left him sick in Miletus. Perhaps the intention was that uh, not only to assure Timothy that the reason Trophimus wasn't with him was because of illness, but also to encourage him, perhaps you need to go and you could send some people there to minister to him. It's interesting also, that we just have to pause for a moment and notice he says, I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. You could ask the question, well, Paul, why didn't you just heal him? Well, because presumably he couldn't. Uh, just like he couldn't heal, heal Epaphroditus. Philippians 2.26, he says Epaphroditus almost died. 
Nor could he heal his own thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. Second Second Corinthians twelve seven through eight. Apparently, even the gift of healing that God had given to the apostles didn't mean that they could just heal everyone they wanted all the time. It wasn't a promise of universal healing. That's instructive to us, isn't it? Especially in our day. To those who might say that, you know, God has promised us on the basis of the atonement healing. And the only, if you're not healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. I don't think anyone's going to accuse the Apostle Paul of not having enough faith, right? So this is a helpful little nugget for us on that issue. But you know, all these names, and this is just a sampling, many other names in New Testament letters, they remind us of something important. They remind us of how many people were involved with gospel ministry in the establishing of the early church during the apostolic era. You know, it wasn't just the great leaders like Paul and Barnabas, Timothy and Titus, and then later Silas, or even the apostles like Peter and John, or the deacons Stephen and Philip who were so filled with gifts and they went around preaching the gospel and performing miracles and seeing so many amazing things done. It wasn't just them. There were countless lesser-known people involved with the ministry. Some of their names are mentioned in the New Testament, like here in in this passage. And Paul would call them, in his humble way, he he would call them partners in the gospel ministry. Not underlings, partners. As for Titus, he says, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. He would call them fellow workers, as if they were two workers in a field, you know, picking strawberries in a field right next to each other. They're fellow workers. Romans 16, 3, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. He would call them fellow soldiers, like as if they were both standing on the battle line of the fight of faith, arm in arm, defending uh, the cause right next to each other. Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. Philippians 2, 25. Paul could not have done what he did, nor any of the other great Christian leaders without the help of these countless lesser-known Christian brothers and sisters. And by the way, brothers and sisters, it's helpful for us to remember that this is true today, isn't it? Behind every John MacArthur and John Piper and Mark Dever and Al Mohler, these great gifted leaders in the faith, is an army of fellow soldiers, fellow workers, fellow laborers, whose, whose names aren't well known. But you know what? who end up doing the bulk of the work. And humble leaders recognize that. You know, not everyone has the same gifts, even in that famous parable of the talents, you know. There was, some had one talent entrusted to them, some had five, some had ten. Not everyone has the same gifts. Not everyone has the same opportunities and resources. But we all have some, right? Right? And our responsibility is to be faithful with what God has entrusted us with. And to recognize that our labor in the Lord is not insignificant. Just because these men's names just sort of pop up occasionally in the Bible doesn't mean that God did not see what they did, that it was not significant. That's helpful for us to remember. Be faithful with what God has entrusted to you. So second, Paul passed news about certain mutual friends in verse 20. And now third, Paul made one final request. This is in verse 21. One final request. There he said, do your best to come before winter. You know, this is really just a 
uh, restatement of that request that he'd made back in verse 9, which we covered last time, where he said, do your best to come to me soon. Here he says, do your best to come to me before winter. And you can see there's multiple reasons for this. First, winter would be cold, and Paul's in a dungeon. And he had told Timothy, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. So partly what he might be thinking is, you know, please come before winter and bring that warm cloak so I can survive these days leading up to my execution. But also, secondly, you know, shipping in the Mediterranean Sea because of weather shut down from November to March. And that's how you traveled in that day is you'd hop on one of these ships that was bringing something here or there. And so if Timothy didn't come before winter, he wouldn't be able to come until the spring. And by that time, as I mentioned, it might be too late. Paul was due to be executed quite soon. And so that's behind this request, is a longing to see Timothy one last time. You know, it's interesting, these kinds of details, they always remind me of the just evident authenticity of these New Testament letters, don't they? You know, this wasn't a forged document written by someone other than Paul years after his death in his name to try to gain a following. This was a real letter. It was written by Paul with a sense of urgency in the midst of harrowing experiences, circumstances. And these circumstances really ring true to the situation of Christians in the first century Roman Empire. You know, don't let skeptics fool you, in other words. The New Testament documents are very plainly authentic. We have every reason to trust their reliability as historical documents. In other words, some people say, oh, you know, these letters, these books, they're just so fanciful. They can't possibly be true. Quite the opposite is actually the case. Details like this actually support the claim that these are authentic letters of eyewitnesses to the life and ministry of Christ they're reliably, reliable historically, and that actually bolsters their claim that they are also the very inspired words of God as men spoke from God being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So third, Paul made one final request in verse 21. And now fourth, Paul sent greetings from certain members of the church in Rome. Verse 21b. Paul sent greetings from certain members of the church in Rome. So, in verse 19, Paul sent greetings to certain members of the church in Ephesus, right? He's in Rome. He sends greetings to members of the church at Ephesus, where Timothy was. But now, in verse 21, Paul sent greetings from certain members of the church in Rome, where he was, right? So now it's greetings from people with him to Timothy in Ephesus. So look at it, the greetings he sends. He says, Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. You know, Paul had indicated that his missionary team was disbanded, except for Luke. I think that's what he means when he says, Luke alone is with me, right? It would be a contradiction to say that and then to indicate that he has all these brothers here <laughs> that he's with. When he says Luke alone is with me, he's talking about his missionary team. They had all left. Only Luke was left. But that didn't mean he was entirely alone. He had fellowship with and visitors apparently from the church there in Rome. So these people were most likely not members of his missionary team, but 
members of the church in Rome. In fact, three of the names are Latin names indicating that they were most likely Christians in Rome who were with him there while he was imprisoned in Rome. And indeed, that phrase, and all the brothers, when you use that term, brothers, the brothers, that was really a term referring to the members of a local church. So he's probably talking about members of a or maybe multiple local churches there in Rome. Now, three of these names are male, Eubulus, Pudens, and Linus. One of them is female. So it's a group of brothers and sisters, a sampling of them out of a larger group of brothers in the churches in Rome. Now, we don't know much about these people. Their names aren't mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament except for here. Perhaps they were singled out by Paul because they were, some suggest, maybe leading figures in the church of Rome. Or perhaps they were people that had been regularly visiting Paul in Rome. So that's why he mentions them. I think most likely he mentions them because they are people that Timothy would know. You remember that Timothy was with Paul during his first imprisonment in Rome, which means that he would have met a number of the members in the church there. But we really can't be sure on all the details. It is interesting that one of these names, Linus, actually appears again in the writings of the second century Christian Irenaeus. He said in his famous work against heresies, chapter 3, verse 3, he says this, The blessed apostles then, having founded and built up the church in Rome, committed into the hands of Linus the office of episcopate. And then he clarifies, of this Linus, Paul makes mention in the epistles to Timothy. So we don't know if that tradition is true. Uh, Many of the traditions that we find in the extra-biblical historical writings are not true. They just reflect um, sort of traditions that people thought were true. But if it is true, that would be an interesting because that would mean that Linus was the first bishop of the Roman church. Whatever the case, Paul probably singled these four Christians out, as I said, because to send greetings to Timothy because Timothy would go, oh, Eubulus, oh, I miss that guy. Oh yeah, Claudia, she's a dear sister, right? That's probably what's happening here. And uh, we can see that hearing that these dear brothers and sisters from the Roman church were there with Paul and sent their greetings to Timothy would have almost certainly just warmed Timothy's heart, right? It's interesting that one of the things that strikes me about this type of passage, because there are many, many others in the New Testament, is just how we have people here that are hundreds of miles away. You know, this would have been roughly the equivalent of a church in, you know, Indiana, relative to a church in, Cor- in uh, California, right? It's, that's how far apart these two churches were. And in that part of the world, of course, you're not talking about different states, you're talking about different countries, right? Uh, but what is very interesting, I mean, I've, they didn't have the same countries back there, but you get the point. But it's so interesting that you see these believers from churches far apart in the New Testament where there were bonds of Christian love and fellowship between people from different local churches throughout the empire. And that was because they were, some were traveling to each other's churches, some were ministering as sort of missionaries on behalf of one church to another. Uh, sometimes it was just simply because they had mutual connections like the Apostle Paul. But they loved each other across different local churches. They clearly had bonds of love and fellowship such that they would greet one another in these New Testament letters, even though they were hundreds of miles away at times and in different cities 
throughout the Roman Empire. And you know, it just strikes me that we need to not forget that this should be true as well, right? We believe here at Cow Creek in what's called the autonomy of the local church. In other words, each local church should be self-governed rather than subject to some kind of hierarchical organization above them, right? Like a presbyterian in a general assembly or a bishop and archbishop, right? We believe in the autonomy of the local church. That's why we are an independent local church. That means we're, we're governed by our own leadership. But that should not, that understanding of the autonomy of the local church does not mean that we are independent in all ways from other local churches. It's not in the relational sense, right? Not in a spiritual sense. We need to remember that Cow Creek Church, listen to this, is united with every other true church, right? No matter how, you know, different they might be from us in some ways, no matter how sickly or healthy they might be, every other true church that has held to the gospel, every other true church, we're united to them. Whatever our differences might be, Jesus Christ. You know, you remember Paul says, there is one gospel, one Holy Spirit, one God and Father of us all, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Sometimes we need to be reminded of this. We cannot simply not care about other local churches outside of ourselves. Right? They're our brothers and sisters. We can't just simply not want to interact with other churches and other Christians. We're called to love them. Worse yet, we can't be just harshly judgmental and critical of all other churches. In other words, be sectarian. If you don't share our beliefs, if you don't share our convictions on these secondary matters, then you know, you're probably not even a Christian. That's not how it was in the early church. Remember, Christians and other true churches are sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. They are part of the bride of our Lord Jesus Christ with us. And we ought to be very careful how we treat them, whatever our differences from us. Yes, it's true. We're going to be limited in how much we can you know, partner with other churches in gospel endeavors because of the differences that we have in doctrine and in philosophy of ministry, etc. But we should love we should serve each other as we are able. This is one of the reasons why uh, I've strived for the last eight years to develop relationships with pastors of other churches in town, to meet with them over coffee. We tried to form a, a monthly pastor's uh, lunch, and we're working on developing more than that. This is why um, you know, we as Christians ought to have friendships with other believers from other churches. And this is why we pray for other local churches in our Lord's Day service to remind us that they are our brothers and sisters. And I want to encourage you. We, should, we all need to be mindful of that. You know, sometimes it's easy to be like, well, a church in New Guinea, ah, yeah, we're, we have our, our hearts are with them. But, you know, the church down the road, because we kind of know a little bit about them, we have a different opinion of. Well, guess what? We shouldn't. Yes, we can be critical. We can, we can pray for spiritual growth and reformation. But we need to remember these bonds that we have. The true spiritual unity we do have in Christ. Well, so fourth, Paul sent greetings from certain church members in the Roman church to Timothy in Ephesus. And now finally, fifth, Paul offers a last benediction. You see it there in verse 22, a final benediction. You know what a benediction is? It's a bestowal of a blessing. 
That's basically what it is. You know, we don't really do that. We don't walk around going, the Lord bless you, right? And we don't do the opposite, you know, pronounce curses. It's kind of, we just don't do that in our day. But they did that quite frequently. In fact, you'll notice it throughout the Bible. Um, And this is what he's doing. He's, He's sort of pronouncing a blessing. Scholars call them a wish prayer, right? It is a type of prayer. Um, he's praying that God would do these things, but, but he's also pronouncing it in the hearing of Paul or of, of Timothy so that Timothy would know what he's praying for him or what he's wishing for him. And actually, almost all of Paul's letters end with a, some kind of benediction. This one has two parts. Notice the first part. He says, the Lord be with your spirit. Now, in this type of context in the New Testament, when he says the Lord, kurios in the Greek, He's speaking of who? Jesus, right? The risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ, their Savior. And it's interesting that the you here is singular. So he's saying to Timothy, the Lord Jesus, be with your spirit. Be with your soul. No, this is not omnipresence. Like, well, Paul, your theology is off. I mean, of course, the Lord is always with everyone. He's everywhere. That's not what he's talking about here. You know this language in the scripture where, of course, the writers knew that God was everywhere present, but they would talk about how the Lord was with me in a certain time and place. You know, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. That's not talking about omnipresence. That's talking about special presence, the Lord's presence in a special way, presence to help, presence to protect, presence to comfort and encourage and provide. Paul's saying, the Lord be with your spirit, Timothy. He knew Timothy was struggling. He was struggling with discouragement, perhaps, timidity. He prays. You know, this is the greatest blessing of the new covenant. Did you know that? A relationship, a fellowship with the Lord, where we can say with David, the Lord is with me. This is the core blessing of all the covenants of Scripture. I will be their God. They will be my people. A relationship with the Lord. His presence with us. There's nothing better than that. There isn't. All the other blessings are means to that end. You don't have forgiveness of sins just to have forgiveness of sins. You have forgiveness of sins so that you can have peace with God and be in relationship with Him, right? God is the great blessing of the gospel. And we all enjoy this. God is present with us in a special way. That's what He's asking. One day, we're going to experience it in full. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Praise God. But we experience it even now. In those last, that last night before he left, the Lord Jesus talked to his disciples and he talked about the coming of the Spirit. He says, you, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. When he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. He's talking about the coming of the Spirit, who is the very Spirit of Christ. It's by the Spirit that Jesus can say, 
Lo, I will be with you even unto the end of the age. The presence, the nearness of Christ to protect and provide and bless and guide. The Lord be with your spirit. And finally, grace be with you. The Lord is with us, but here he prays for the free favor of God to be with Timothy. You know, grace in the Bible sometimes just speaks of the favor of God, but sometimes it speaks of the help that God gives out of his free favor. You know, it's difficult to tell which it is here, but it's just just all of it, right? God's favor and help and blessings of every sort. Grace be with you. It's all ours in Christ. What's interesting is, In the first part of the verse, the Lord be with your spirit. The you is singular. This you is plural. So it's as if he's turning now to the whole Ephesian church and saying, grace be with you all. You know how we need the presence and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he really is everything to us. You know, think about this. You young people... If you're a believer, maybe you're a child here, there's nothing more precious, and this is all of us, but I want even young people to know, to know the Lord Jesus. So as you read the New Testament and you read the stories of Jesus, think about this. That Jesus that you're reading on the pages of Scripture is there in heaven, risen and reigning, and you can know him. And nothing is more precious than that. Paul says, I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And his grace is our all-sufficiency. You know, John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Listen, disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. His grace is our all-sufficiency. We can do nothing apart from him. We need him to be with our spirit. We need his grace. His love is our refuge. You think, oh, my circumstances are so awful. I'm in danger. The Lord Jesus loves you. Ah, it's a refuge. Nothing can happen to me apart from his permission. His faithfulness is our hope. But how is this going to work out? What can I do? Ah, the Lord has promised me. His goodness is our joy. Think of all the gifts he's given you, brother, sister. Amidst all the trials of life, all of the gifts, every spiritual blessing. His teaching is our guide. He teaches us so faithfully in his word for every circumstance in his life. His character is our example. We follow him around like puppy dogs, wanting to be like Jesus. So we can do nothing, nothing of value without him. We can't do anything better with our life than follow him. And so our greatest longing should be for what this blessing pronounces. That he would be with us. And we long for that day when faith shall be sight. So is that your heart, brother, sister? If If not, I just pray, if you find that your soul is dry to these things, pray that God would fill you with these kinds of desires that these would become the burning passion of your life. They were for Paul. They would, the last words that we have recorded for him, this is what he spoke. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be to you.
And if you're not a Christian here, you know, I, I know that some of this might sound mysterious to you, but I want to I just speak to you for a moment. The Bible says that you are a remarkable creature, that God made you in his own image. That's why, you know, hopefully if uh, your family house caught on fire, um, you know, in your family, you were asleep in your room, but your family was somehow outside and they were sending the firemen back in. They're not, if they go back in, they're not going to rescue, you know, the painting or the expensive electronic commitment uh, stuff. They're not even going to rescue the family dog. They're going to rescue you first because you are more valuable than all those things because you were made in the image of God. And we all distinctively know that inherent value that we have. It comes because you're made in God's image. But just like when you look in the mirror and you look at your image, what you see is a likeness of yourself. So you were made to reflect the likeness of your creator. And that's when you can realize how far you have fallen short of the glory for which God has made you. All of the sin, not only with respect to God, that you have not loved him with your whole heart, but also with respect to others, that you have not loved your neighbor as yourself, but there is bitterness and resentment and lusts and selfishness and pride. And all of these things bring you under God's condemnation. And you need forgiveness from him. And this is why God has sent Jesus. He is the savior of the world. The son of God, the God man, God taken on human flesh to earn our righteousness through a perfect human life, to bear our sin through his substitutionary death upon the cross where he was bruised for our transgressions so that we might have peace. And his resurrection from the dead, that he's won the victory over sin and death for every sinner who will simply believe and trust in him. So if you're not a believer this morning, I would encourage you, cry out to Jesus, even this morning, and he will save you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the scriptures say, and you will be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I pray that you would do that this morning. Well, these are the last recorded words of the Apostle Paul. And in them, we have preserved for us reflections, as it were, of a remarkable life of one of the greatest Christ followers and Christ lovers who's ever been lived on this earth. And there's much for us to learn, even from these last words that he spoke. I pray we'll take them to heart this morning and learn from them. By the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a wonderful and rich time together today, both in our discipleship hour and also in our worship service over this past hour. We thank you for the singing of spiritual songs and hymns, making melody to you from our hearts. We thank you for the prayers, for Jordan leading us in the scripture reading and the prayers. Oh God, we need our hearts shaped by your word. We need to draw near to you in sincere prayer and what a blessing to do it together. We thank you for the preaching of the word, for your God-breathed, for the God-breathed scripture that you've given to us, for our training in righteousness and so that we might know you. Oh Lord, we pray that you would take everything from our service today and that you would use it to richly bless us so that we might live lives that glorify you. We love you. We love your son, the Lord Jesus, our King and Savior.
pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.